welcome to Play to Find Out, the Dungeon World podcast from the Dungeon World Discord. It's me, Arthur, or Art Projects, one of your co-hosts. And it's me, Eamon, or Voidlight, your other co-host. Now, we've got some slight audio issues tonight due to an atypical recording setup, but hopefully our content will make up for our quality. Because tonight... is uh, lying on a, a workbench with its guts spilled out. This is a backup. And tonight... Speaking of workbenches and guts spilling out, we're going to be doing another one of our zine-style episodes. The danger episode, where we talk through different dangers, signs of approaching threats, and the threats themselves. But first, Eamon, I understand you have a highlight to share. Oh, I definitely do. Uh, Your segues always are my highlights. But I have a highlight from um, a recent PvP session. Um, we've been playing, as we've referenced on the, uh, some of the past couple episodes, a PvP session from some f- wonderful folks from the Dungeon World Discord server. And Hobbitmeister, shout out on the Discord server, is playing a character named Jason Corbett. And he is a half-vampire um, with a whole suite of vampiric abilities playing a playbook called the Blood Magus, I believe. Um, yes. and blood magus the, or magus possibly magus yeah i've in, never in been the, sure in the magical sense and the playbook has a mechanic whereby the player main uh, gets sustenance which is a resource that they can spend to power their spell sort of like a mana but when they do so and when they like exert their vampiric nature they the gm accrues a resource known as thirst that can be spent to force the player to uh lash out or endanger the party or just show the the wild side of being a vampire and a lot of playbooks have little gimmicks like that um uh, depending on what they are Um, i've seen uh, lots of playbooks constructed around the idea of having a playbook specific resource of some some sort of hold that's generated and indeed a lot of the original dungeon roll playbooks have something or other like that usually confined to the scope of a single move though Um, but anyway, this was the best experience with anything like that that I've had to date in Dungeon World. And it was constructed pretty organically, um, which is why it's the highlight. So here's what happened in fiction. So Jason Corbett is part of an adventuring group known as Death's Folly, and he's trying to work with others, but his vampiric nature will sometimes get in the way. And after a particularly stressful uh, attempt on the lives of the members of Death's Folly, he split off from the group to go into town to look for someone that he could uh, feed on and, and take their blood to get sustenance back so that he would um, not slip into want of, of want of sustenance and want of blood. And he has a moral code, so he was trying to look for someone specific. He was trying to look for someone deserving or bad, at least by his own standards, that he could prey upon. And he eventually got into this complicated situation where he found himself face-to-face with a demon hunter and, and was in, in mortal danger. And he had been gone for some time, so we framed up uh, a scene where another one of the characters, uh, Everett Diaz Dawson, was my who character. Was a paladin, yes, Art's character, was went to look for him um, because he had been gone for some time. And as soon as Jason had killed his mark and was feeding on them, that was the moment that Everett um, came into the room. And at that point, I had accrued three thirst which allowed me on the thirst list as the GM to cause Jason to lash out at a party member. And so Everett rushes into the room, like hoping to heal 
um, Jason because Jason had just suffered wounds from the fight. And as soon as he comes in, I narrated that uh, Jason looks up from the corpse that he's feeding on and still in, in you know, a blood-fueled rage from being stabbed and from also like just having fed, he lashes out at, at, at Everett as soon as Everett comes into the room. And um, Everett, uh, you narrated art that as Everett was being attacked, he like took it and grit his teeth through it and continued to heal Jason. So that like as he's being fed on, he he takes the hit and and continues to like use his lay on hands to heal Jason, um, which combined with the um, combined with the the health that he got back from feeding on you actually healed him to full. So you really did the self-sacrificial paladin thing in a really interesting way. And it kind of played on the interesting elements of both of your classes and also characters, because the whole thing with your character is that um, their, their morals are being warped by the party that they're with. And so allowing a creature who ostensibly be a creature of darkness, um, but who you don't see as such to feed on you and to literally grow stronger because of your, um, your sacrifice is a real, I don't know. It was a good moment. And you guys responded well to it. You didn't see it. It wasn't too contrived. Like, I was like, oh, certainly they're going to see this coming. And I was like, and he lashes out at you. And you guys were both like, ah, I should have seen that coming. Yeah, so, I yeah. totally forgot that that was even a thing you could do. Um, now, from my perspective, that scene really worked for me because, as you alluded to, both of our characters have sort of a warped sense of morality. And my paladin, Everett, is definitely the arc that I'm looking at with him definitely has some fallen paladin kind of vibes already starting to be set up. Very excited to see where those go. And I also, I hearing you describe that scene made me realize that I actually did cheat slightly because I think technically I triggered the paladin move Bloody Aegis or Aegis. Aegis? I don't know how you pronounce that word. The one where you get a shield Aegis. and you don't take damage yeah. and instead take a debility. I don't know. If I th thinking back on it, that probably did trigger, and I almost wish that we had that we had handled that that way in fiction. But I'm sure we'll come back to that at some point. What does Bloody Ages do again? Uh, that is the one where instead of taking damage, I can instead choose to take a debility, up to that, six debilities, would, up to up to all of them. How would that have changed things much, though? It wasn't really about the damage that you took. It was more about the fact that he attacked you. I totally. Uh, but it's just a, a rules thing that I realized I had not handled okay. quite correctly because there was a move that may have triggered that I didn't uh, didn't remember to to actually go through with. But that's not important right now. What is important is the actual topic of our episode today. Now, this is the danger episode. So today we're going to be giving danger ideas. Now, these are things that you can be using as grim portents or as possible uh catastrophic dooms in your fronts there are also things you can use on a seven to nine or six minus on a defy danger or something that you can use as just a fun little gm move to have in your back pocket for when you're out of ideas and need to do something in order to make it happen so i've got a bunch amen you've brought a bunch why don't i get started absolutely all right so now my first dangers are inspired by a conversation I had with Tam on the Discord about whether or not social dangers are something that can trigger defy danger. And so I thought I'd start by bringing to the table a few social dangers that I recognize from my own life and have no hesitation to apply in my games. Now there are two social dangers that I feel are 
appropriate triggers for a defy danger role. And those are uh, embarrassment and its sister slash cousin peer pressure. These two things I think many of us are familiar with either from our own real lives or from our imagined lives that we were told we would have as teenagers. And so I'm thinking of them as being the teen movie plot point dangers. These are great ways to make sure that you have justification for dice rolls during social encounters. Yes, oh, we absolutely can have this conversation, but you're going to need to defy danger in order to get what you want. The danger? Well, asking for what you want is, frankly, uh, completely gauche and should not be done in this setting. Embarrassment is the danger. Or, alternately, you know, in order to not sabotage this budding relationship you have with these warlords, you're going to need to defy danger, charisma, to not drink with them to the point of blackout or possibly even death, defying the danger of peer pressure. These social dangers are an opportunity to trigger defy danger in contexts where we might ordinarily not assume that it would be triggered, because we don't really think of our of our PCs, of our heroes, as being susceptible to social dangers the way we are as people. But of course, our PCs are people too. Social um, dangers. There are certain other games that almost exclusively focus on this as being the main danger, especially games with modern settings or paranormal settings. And I, I think um, to Monster Hearts um, as just being one that everyone references as being like that. And there are being there uh, there are certain moves in Monster Hearts that are constructed entirely like Dungeon World rules because it's also a PBTA powered by the Apocalypse game. Um, but they're entirely dealing with this sort of thing. There's a move called Turn On, where you're basically trying to like seduce another character. And I mention that because that's like the one social danger that is always ported into fantasy RPGs, even back into the day of like, even if it's a total hack and slash adventure, there'll be the one person somewhere for some reason deep in the dungeon that whose like whole gimmick is like that they're like a seductress or something like that. But um, it's interesting that like, it, it takes like mental fortitude and it's like t testing those aspects of the character in, in those points and showing other um, other things about them or like having someone roll defy danger to practice restraint um, is is interesting in certain and, and, and this is a lot of a lot of these are going to be for certain types of campaigns you know like um, not everyone is going to if they roll if a, you have a table that all roll up a bunch of fighters and and they're really gearing up for the you know, grindy portions of the game, um, having this, putting them in a party scenario and having them have a bunch of roles to avoid like social faux, um, faux pause, like might not be that great, but can be, I've definitely seen it played to amazing effect. Totally. It's also a great way to break up the pacing. If every danger that you encounter is being run through by a lance or a spear, then that it can be fun, but it can also get a little samey. It's a good way to make sure also that we're exercising all of our stats. These are dangers that can also be defied with wisdom or int, depending on what the player says they're doing to uh, to avoid them. Another um, another game that uh, plays on these things that I quite like and plays on what I think is one of the best elements of social dangers, which is escalation of threat, um, is Blades in the Dark, because Blades in the Dark has the, the consort and then the command in the... Um, command and sway as like different different traits which suggests that you, there will be opportunities to use those right like when when there are things mm -hmm. in your character cheated they suggest the situations and blades in the dark also has the mechanic that when there's um there's levels of threat of a situation like you could be in a controlled situation 
and the consequences of the move will be appropriate. So sometimes the situation might be controlled, right? You're just chatting with someone and you're just trying to get on their good side, but you fail the role somehow. And the threat might be that the, the danger um, escalates. So it goes from a, a casual conversation to like, now his hands on his dagger. He's like, what did you just say to me? And because of your social things, it can either get violent or not. Whereas um, the, the threat is escalating and the situation's kind of getting out of hand. You see that all the time in movies, but a lot of times things, in, especially in adventure um, dungeon crawling games, things are always turned up to 11. Every time you encounter a monster, it's always violence right off the bat, or like there's not really a way to talk yourself out of something, or if there is, it's starting from violence and trying to like worm your way out of it instead of trying to keep things civil is sometimes interesting. Um, I've seen games that have little tables for the monsters of what they're doing when you encounter them. So you might encounter them in a, in a relatively low key situation. Um, and then you are, especially for humanoid monsters, and it's up to you to uh, use your maneuvering to control the, the tenor of that engagement. Of, is it going to go to arms? Would that be to your advantage? If not, uh, how can you avoid that? It can be really, really interesting. Um, the uh, I had I had a, the, the next danger on my list is another one along the lines of this in that it's a less tangible danger, but the danger of nature um, slash want. So sometimes, and it's sort of a mantra of the OSR and old old school games, um, you can just be killed by the want of something, um, want of uh, want of food, want of light, want of warmth. And so in, even in games where you're not going to an absurd amount of um, detail in tracking encumbrance or tracking food and rations or um, tracking like different survival mechanics, in, uh, having that as a gimmick in, in certain rooms of a dungeon or um, for a certain uh, stretch of a journey can be used to great effect um, if your characters are on board with it. I really like the idea of scenes where characters are looking for strange things that will just be edible just because they've run out of food and they just need it from other sources. Um, trying to find ways to test if certain monsters they've slain are edible because they're driven to desperation. The tough conversation of which character is going to, um, you know, give up part of their body or like be killed or something like that. If like the, the, they, or like which hireling is going to die, like just listening to your characters have that conversation, I feel like would be really interesting, but, um, easy to, easy to fall into the temptation of forcing that as a GM, but can be really cool. I had a, um, and it makes me think of a whole slew of a whole slew of dungeon ideas I've seen that are leaning on something other than just what they stock the dungeon with to be dangerous. Whether, um, so like the, the circumstances or the environment of the dungeon create a situation where that is the danger. And there's one that I'll, I'll link to in the show notes called escape the oubliette where the characters, um, and it's hard framed at the beginning of this dungeon, but you could change it in this, in the, in the, in the given module, they wake up naked and, um, just chained up in like the, in this just dark room, like hundreds of feet below the ground. And if they get out and there's really not many people down there, there's not many like direct threats to attack them. But the, the thing is that the river is diverted into this dungeon and it's slowly filling with water. And the, and once they're in the final room, it's basically like a sheer, just, um, shaft to the to the surface with just not really anything to climb on and so they're having to find ways to either ride the water to the surface or somehow go off the walls or like create climbing things and it's almost like a uh, a logic puzzle 
um, that that has no correct solution uh, or has many correct solutions, but no single one. Um, and that that sort of play can be really, really fun, especially for the types of people who love escape rooms, the types of people who love um, just like thought uh, challenges I, where the quality of the idea you come up with matters a lot and uh, m- multiple successive rolls of the dice don't necessarily because sometimes in combat you can be screwed over just because the the dice are against you. Whereas in a lot of these sorts of things, you're planning, um, it has a, carries a lot of weight, and that can be really really fun, both to die to and to uh, triumph against. Totally, that sounds very dangerous. I wanted to say one more thing that goes along with that: um, the danger of greed. This can be injected um, where you tempt the players by just putting a lot of stuff before them. And kind of hinting that, like, if they just try to have all of their cakes and eat them too, things are going to go badly and force them to make those tough choices. One easy way to do this is have them suddenly stumble upon a horde. You know, maybe, you know, you kill the dragon, but now you're in a room, just a football field size room, just full of gold. It's literally too much to carry out of here. And for some reason, there is danger to stay, right? Um, maybe like this, this room is again, you could say it's slowly filling with water or like other forces are inbound. It's about to be under siege by the elven army. Just, you know, and, totally um, original example there. So people are like, we don't want to just leave with a few pocketfuls. We want to take as much as they can carry And there. You know, we had a pack mule that was supposed to be help us here, but then he died on level two and, and we had hirelings, but, um, some of them have already been like killed. And, oh, did you prefer prepare tensors floating disc or that one spell that you could have taken that like just gives you, you know, unseen servant to just carry a bunch of stuff? No. And so suddenly those things have use, you know, like where there's all these like utility things like to have hirelings, you know, just torchbearers and stuff. It's just more load. Um, and so suddenly like that, that's pushing a certain mechanic, which is the mechanic of load that like, um, you want to carry as much as you can, even to the point of like light encumbrance, just that you can you know, scrape out of here with an insane profit and, and just like seeing how far they'll go, how far they'll risk. Um, that can, you can even make, if you want to narrow the scope, you could just make a single custom move, um, that triggered by like, when you try to take more, uh, more gold than you probably should, you know, that could be the trigger for, for the move. And then you could have uh, results based on a con roll or, um, something, something like that based on like how much they're carrying. Totally. And the book also has rules for over encumbrance that we can use to make that to codify that danger in a way that they're prepared for even before they've encountered the treasure hoard, which I rarely see now, come up in games, unfortunately. Yeah. Now, I alluded to my next danger a moment ago. The danger is the advancing army far in the distance. You can hear the war drums and the trumpets as they march and march they do inexhaustibly. Their numbers are extreme, or perhaps it's a smaller force, but they're elite. They carry weapons, small sidearms, and and bolt flingers that fire courses through, and they have some unnatural ability of industry, or whatever it happens to be. Setting up an army at an extreme distance as an approaching threat is one thing that I like to keep in my back pocket at all times for cliffhangers and for grim portents. It's one of those really broadly applicable ones where the players won't necessarily think, oh, it's our job to fight the army, although they might think that. But knowing that an army is on their way is a disruptive force that completely changes the nature of the place where they are. 
in one of my campaigns from last summer, there was an army of elves from the east that were that were preparing to invade. And the players started by antagonizing some of their scouts, and then over the course of the campaign, ended up ended up taking advantage of the natural geography that they were in to cut off the elven navy from the river. And one of the things that made that really fun for me was that all I'd said was, oh, there are elves here. And the players were the ones that decided, oh, these elves are going to be the main antagonists from throughout this quest. But they could just as easily have been, oh, we're going to settle in with the elves because there are a couple of elves with us. And then we're all going to get together and go and, and lay waste to this this horrible cursed forest that they were all in. And armies are just a really fertile ground for storytelling, and it's a great way to change things up when things need to be changed. So it's a very powerful danger. I heartily agree. Mass combat is something that definitely has a home in Dungeon World and um, can really um, create some epic moments that your players will remember, which is always a goal for me as a GM. Um, On a different note, I wanted to bring up some sort of ephemeral dangers uh, this is similar to similar to um, what I was just saying of like dangers that are created by a circumstance, um, but a little a little different in that they're more of the mind than than of the body. Um, there are some games again that deal with these more heavily, but um, for as for a lot of these, we're taking edge case examples and seeing how Dungeon World uh, can do with them. Uh, one danger is ennui, ennui, which is sort of the existential. Um, boredom or existential like stress that comes with uh, long life or uh, is typically shown that way and especially for characters like elves or characters that are immortal um, or uh, or NPCs that are immortal if you just want to show someone dealing with this um, can be really interesting it's like once you've seen it all like how do you avoid just turning in on yourself or or, um, things like that. I'm envisioning a scenario where the PCs inadvertently become trapped in a wizard's gem or become victims of a soul gem spell. And literally on the outside world, thousands of years are passing while they're trying to figure out how to get out of here. But because of either magic or because of a contained environment where they have an infinite amount of like um, food that's replenishing, um, the PCs can't die while they're in there. They're just trying to find out how to escape. And the danger eventually becomes... Um, you'll you'll find a way to escape by brute force of trying everything after hundreds of years, but can you stay sane that long? And like some sort of check of like your your int score is slowly going down temporarily, and if it reaches zero before you find a way out, um, you know you're making checks. You you go insane, and 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 you're gonna stay in here as as you um, just lose your mind as in this contained environment, sort of like a mental. Uh, a perceived claustrophobia additionally paranoia can be something like that if a character Mm -hmm. either magically or otherwise is is inflicted with something where they they're hypersensitive to threat all the time and the stress and just wearing on them you could create inter-party conflict from that or or at least um, signal or encourage it of one character they always have to be the one taking watch because they don't trust the other characters to do it. And so they're not getting the benefits of long rests or their, their hit points aren't regenerating. So they're always demanding healing and they're always like things like that. Additionally, you could play with the idea of enemies that literally exist in this realm, like that the enemy is a thought or the enemy is a, the a front in your game could be a, a dangerous new idea, especially if you have an emulator in a game, maybe there's the danger is that if left to their own devices, 
the local population will get the idea of rebellion in their heads, go and challenge the capital, get themselves all killed, which is bad because you don't want the townspeople to be all killed, presumably, and piss off the regime to the point where they instruct mar inflict martial law. And so you have to sort of side with the rebellion because maybe you sympathize with them, but like temper their methods that they don't go and um, be too overt about everything. So like co combating uh, dangerous ideas could be its own little arc. What do you think, Arthur? Very cool. I like the angle that you've taken here of dangers that are so internal it's a great way. It's one of those areas where I feel like as GMs, we can cross the line a little too easily by telling characters how they feel. But giving inevitable emotions, gravity and weight, making them into a danger is something that when handled deftly can communicate a lot more than just saying, oh, you're there for a thousand years and that makes you feel bad. Um, so I've, I'm a I'm a big fan of that approach. One meta technique that I've seen um, a lot of content creators for Dungeon World do is when they create a unique location um, that has something like subtle or not um, directly overt, like a creature that's going to run at you and attack you, that they want to give the players the ability to interact with, they write the custom move, but then they let the players decide if they are going to trigger it. Um, but they make it something flavorful and potentially put like an XP reward or put something, you know, like the promise of information, like a, you get to ask one question sort of thing. Um, in the moves, the players might want to trigger it and then just kind of throw it out there. So maybe when you're trapped in the gem, it says, if you start to lose your mind, you know, roll on, roll, roll this check, roll this move. So like the player could either like narrate their character, just, you know, closing their mind off and, 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 and weathering through it. Or if they wanted to see what their character would be like on the edge, if they wanted to see what their character would be like in the face of this danger, they could choose to roll it. Right. And they would narrate that. So it's a way of um, making something cool without forcing it on your players. Mm -hmm. um, I've seen that at different times. I, it, it also has physical analogs, right? If you make a, tr if you make a trap or something, um, you can put it in front of your players and they're going to choose whether to touch it or not. Right. It's like when you pull the gem off its pedestal. If you make a move that triggers when you do that, it, it makes the players have to decide if they're going to do it or not. You're not forcing it on them. You're not like your character walks in the room and immediately takes the gem. They'd be like, hold on. No, I don't. You know, so that's a way, a way to give the agency, but also still uh, give the, the story room to go into those spaces. Yeah. And hopefully, uh, I mean, your players aren't playing too safe. Like it's one of their principles to like seek out danger, you know? Yeah. I like that plan a lot. And speaking of seeking out danger, my final danger that I think I'm going to be bringing to the episode today is a classic formula for an adventure front. It's something that Michael Crichton in particular, I think, is the master of. It's the, we thought we could contain it, but we were wrong school of adventuring. And we, we see this in, in movies like Jurassic Park and any of its end sequels. We also see it in TV shows like Westworld. This idea that there's some kind of force that we can profit from. It's under control. It's a huge, almost, almost, uh, almost insurmountable force. But we definitely can handle it. And of course you can't. So for me, that is like a really great way to set up an adventure and give sort of an underlying danger that, uh, given a danger that underscores whatever social or interpersonal traumas that exist, whatever factions need to resolve. 
It's a way to spice all of that up and tell more interesting stories together. Now, the basic flow, as I perceive it, and Eamon, jump in if any of this doesn't seem quite right to you, is sort of a three-phase approach. Phase one is everything is under the under control. The PCs arrive and they see what it is that is so dangerous here. Maybe they object to it, maybe they don't, but right now everything seems fine, so they go do something else. And then there's the turn. The monster escapes, the AI becomes malevolent, whatever it happens to be. And from then on, it's PCs going off and doing stuff that's not strictly related to the monster because they can't they can't defeat it. But the monster is also trying to do things that are in that same area. The Jurassic Park example is, of course, the people want to get off the island. The Jurassic Park wants to eat stuff, and it just so happens that the stuff to eat is near the people or is the people. And then finally, there's the conclusion in which the PCs achieve their purpose in spite of the monster or perhaps because of it, they get out of there or they die horribly. Two great options. And one very flavorful fantasy version of this is something that I think I read, and I'll try to track this down, but it's so long ago that I'm not sure I'll be able to. Something I believe I read in Dragon Magazine, like a really old back issue of Dragon Magazine, of a city built around an imprisoned Tarrasque. The Tarrasque is a sort of a great old one almost. It is something that is unkillable, totally invincible doesn't care about life. I don't think it's explicitly malevolent so much as it is just hungry and all-consuming. But the prospect of building a city around a Tarrasque that has been imprisoned and is totally under control is a pretty good one because you get to harvest magical blood or magical bits and parts, you know, hacking off meat from the Tarrasque and then watching as it magically regrows itself. After all, the thing is immortal. That's a really cool setting. You can come up with a lot of cool flavor around why this city is so successful and so uh, so profitable. What sorts of businesses rely on the Tarrasque being there. And then when the Tarrasque escapes or starts to escape or whatever it happens to be, all of that collapses. And dealing with the collapse of that is as interesting as dealing with the monster itself. So this is the we thought we could contain it, but we were wrong school of adventure design. I have read um, The Andromeda Strain by Michael Crichton, which is sort of flowing after the same thing. There's like an underground secret military base, and they're just trying to understand this virus. And eventually the quarantine is broken and the virus gets out. It's along those lines. And the tension created by that is really, really good. Um, I would say that one of the biggest, biggest touchstones, and for good reason for Dungeon World, um, is The Lord of the Rings. And it, it, as you were saying this, I was realizing that it kind of follows a version of that formula where the ring is that thing that they think they have under control, but really they don't. And it's, they're doing things that aren't directly related to it. Like all the people that they're killing are, you know, tangentially so that they can, that they won't get the ring and that they can keep moving forward. But the ring is also manipulating them and drawing people to it and stuff. And um, they think they're in control even up to the end. And then Frodo realizes that he, he really isn't. Um, the, uh, the, so the, the ring is that is that danger that it has its own wants and things, and you could put this into a campaign with any kind of sentient item. Um, there's a, a one of my fa- all time favorite D and D dungeons is uh, White Plume Mountain, and a lot of people probably uh, know about it if they are plugged into Fifth Edition at all, or even if they're just plugged into generic D and D because it was a really old adventure. But it was republished in uh, the Tales from the Yawning Portal, where there's this 
dungeon and there's three different magic items like that are all these sentient weapons that are in it in different areas but when you get one of those sentient weapons like you're really going to want to use it because the powers are awesome you know and it's there there are, there are custom classes i think there's one uh that was written by sage and adam called the bearer um which is just when you achieve a sentient when you have a sentient uh sword or just a sentient magic item in in dungeon world but yeah the whole battle there is will it control you or will you control it and it's it's that's it's that similar michael Crichton thing of like maybe the weapon plays it easy to sort of like let you have your defenses down and then it's like oh nope i have a you know deep emotional mental hold on you that you didn't expect um and then it brings in both that physical danger and those mental dangers at the same point which i think is a a good way to knit those together totally Beholders, they believe that they personally are the most important thing in the universe, and as a result, their perspective is a little bit skewed, and any intrusion on that perspe- on that skewed perspective is tantamount to a grievous insult and one deserving of death. I'm going to jump in with mimics. I think that um, mimics are, they can easily be a cliche if it's just you open the chest, the chest bites you, but there's a specific version of a mimic that I am uh, is inspired by a, a specific page in the Kill Six Billion Demons um, webcomic that I want to call out. Um, you come up to a door, a massive door that is clearly the entry to a treasure hoard or something, a throne room or something very significant. And when you put your, there, there is a, a, a face carved into this door, a massive visage, perhaps potentially a demonic face or an angelic face, whatever you like. And when the characters um, begin to try to figure out how to pick this door or how to force it, um, as soon as they touch it in a way that it wasn't designed to be touched, the eyes of the face open and the mouth opens and it just begins to scream. And this door is a a living door, it, it becomes apparent. And the screaming is like an alarm system. And the only way to make the screaming stop is to feed a living creature into the door that it will munch up and chew and then the head will split open and you can go through. So that's a cool way to use what by all intents and purposes is essentially a mimic, some living creature that is masquerading as a just an inert item, but work it into like more of a trap than a simple monster. Cool. All right, I'd like to pitch the Meta Spider. The Meta Spider is something from the backstory of the the play-by-post game that we're doing right now. It is every spider in the world, all those tiny little creepy-crawly critters, except each of them is actually on the end of the legs of a slightly larger spider. And then each of those slightly larger spiders is at the end of a leg of an even larger spider than that. And this goes all the way up until eventually you've got the one master meta spider that is almost the puppeteer running every other spider in the world. Imagine seeing that for the first time, crossing into the spider dimension and being confronted by its grim web. There's a, there's a YouTube video I'm going to link that, that really pushes that. Um, okay. I really like the Raven Queen from the, um, the Faerun, the Faerun setting. Uh, I guess it's not in Faerun, but it's just the Forgotten Realms. The idea of some figure that was driven mad by uh, a ritual gone bad and exists, um, purely as like a, a social construct of just different symbols. They're so enigmatic that um, they're, anytime they're appearing physically is, is just a representation of them because they are, they are like 
you know, this character potentially is like all the lies in the universe together. This character is like the essence of secrets or something like that. And mainly the characters are going to encounter them through uh, their minions, which in the case of the Raven Queen is the Shadar Kai. And that when they're seen, they're very flavorful because when they're seen on any plane, um, other than their home plane, they're looking at like these youthful elves, very pale, kind of like dark elves, but not um, completely dark like drow, or they, they could just be dark elves in their home setting. But on their home plane, you see them for what they really are as like desiccated corpses. They, they look very old with like swollen joints and things like that. So yeah, the, the idea of characters that are very melancholy, but also like hide their true nature is um, wrapped up in that. Cool. Then there's from Dark Souls, the Bone Wheel Skeleton. I've been replaying Dark Souls now that the remastered version has been released. And Bonewheel Skeletons are a real nightmare to deal with. They are skeletons wrapped in a wheel. They're carrying it over their shoulder like an oversized bandolier. And at a moment's notice, they can jump forward and somersault towards you at full speed, using the wheel to drive their attack. And then when they hit you, they keep rolling into you, spike on spike on spike. And it is an unpleasant experience. Especially with all the ledges in that game. Good lord. Oh, yes. Um, my, my next thing is errant spells. So spells that are either have gone wrong or persistent or have gotten trapped in a location or sentient spells that have just taken up residence somewhere. And there's one that I, um, I thought of from watching a woman with hollow eyes, which is a actual play series of invisible sun, the one shot podcast and one shot network has been producing. Um, with uh, Darcy Ross from Monty Cook Games as the GM, but when they were creating their, um, they were creating their specific neighborhood of Saturine, which is the the default city of that game. Uh, they were trying to say what are weird things that are in our neighborhood, and one character said that there was a sound hole. So was, there was the, just this invisible sphere that was encompassing a couple city blocks that you could wander into, where just there was no sound. It was on mute. It was completely silent all the time because of a magical effect. And that this was sort of a local nuisance, that people would wander into the sound hole and just like, you would, you would bump into people around corners because you wouldn't hear them coming at all. Or, you know, you would miss shouted warnings from people and, and, and you know, it was just easier to be accident prone. And it was easier to get lost in there just because there was just no sound. So the complete absence of one sense um, could be a, uh, a monster unto itself or a trap unto itself. Or it could be an effect of something. Maybe, maybe there's a monster that, um, unless it itself is speaking, there is no sound, you know, or something like that. Cool. I'd like to conclude this lightning round with one last monster. The Boy King. A child who took on the crown far too young after his father and mother died too early. And now his underdeveloped sense of morality and inability to comprehend mortality make him a despotic and cruel leader. A tyrant motivated by tantrums. The Boy King. I like that one a lot. That I, I, I would run something like that in the, the Voivodja setting from um, A Red and Pleasant Land, where it's a sort of Alice in Wonderland type world, whereas like some petulant nursery child, for some reason, has the power to decide if people live and die and exercises that in all the wrong ways. Nice. Okay. Do we have well, any uh, listener emails? I think today? it's time for listener emails. 
we're going to jump uh, right in to one last danger. This comes in from Torin Blood. Thank you, Torin, on the Discord. The question is simple. What are fun ways to run a zombie plague? Let that one sink in for just a second here. Zombies in uh, in my games are often um, not found in isolation. I, I know in a lot of zombie fiction, it's um, it's a worldwide phenomenon that has caused this, and the zombies are a very large and distributed problem. Um, a lot of times in fantasy games, we see zombies are are in the company of a lich or a necromancer, and so you're seeing them because they're they're the product of a certain creator. Um, but I do like the idea of a large uh, local outbreak and how that influences things. Um, I think what's interesting about zombies is their effect on companions. If I was ever going to run zombies in a campaign, I would definitely want to make sure the players had access to hirelings or to like townsfolk and people so that they have the, um, the, the fiction and the interesting scenarios of when their friends unfortunately die, they have to dispose of the body in certain ways to make sure that it's not going to come back and be a liability to them. And the and the of course the classic scene of someone is bitten but not killed and you know that they're going to turn into a zombie soon so you're rushing to either stop that or to give them less rights or to make sure that they um, are you know secured all very very cool and flavorful and that's that's the type of things I'd be angling to see in any sort of zombie related adventure for sure. I want to think a little bit about the moment to moment process of running a game with zombies. I feel like. If you look at a show like The Walking Dead or a movie like Dawn of the Dead or really any other piece of fiction with the word dead in the title, I guess, the natural thing to do to frame is the heroes are walking someplace quietly. They're paranoid. They're looking around. They're keeping an eye out. Suddenly one of them trips or makes a noise and then the horde comes and they escape the horde, close the door or get over the fence or drive out or whatever it happens to be and then they start walking quietly again and that loop kind of repeats itself over and over in different ways they've got different objectives they're carrying different things they have different access to weapons but overall zombie fiction runs the risk of becoming very repetitive if you don't if if you fall into that cycle if you fall into that rut so if we're running zombie plagues one thing we should be cautious of is on a six minus we don't just say oh zombies come Every single time, even though that's kind of the natural inclination, at least for me, is at a, at a six minus. Well, obviously, it's time to fight some some hordes. I think it can be a little bit of it, it can be actually fun to lean into the opposite of that, where on a six minus no zombies come. That's weird. Why aren't there any zombies? You did just make a ton of noise. You, that that misfire of that crossbow, uh, that twang echoed out through the canyon. No zombies coming. It's a good way to build tension. A six minus result, you can almost make a move that is just build tension. Show signs that the approaching threat isn't actually approaching. Ugh. Very oh, spooky. Yeah. There's um, zomb some of my favorite zombie pieces of media are ones that subvert it somehow. I really like the Dead Space um, oh. trilogy, although there is another spinoff game, because they would do things... They, they, they were... I mean, they were examples of the horror genre where... Um, something would be safe, but seemingly dangerous a couple times and then surprise you. You know, like the last three elevators were rickety, but 
nothing came out, which makes me think that ah, this is just scary because everything's scary. Yeah, elevator's just a load. This elevator, yeah, yeah, this elevator. No, you're actually going to get attacked on like the fifth one or something like that. Breaking patterns, letting people get lulled into having the characters um, works. Having the characters choose between having things well lit and drawing no attention. Maybe they're going to proceed through these caverns with no light because they don't want to draw more zombies to location at the risk of accidentally bumping into the zombies that there are. Um, when you were describing um, the the last thing you were saying, I had the, um, the just scene conjured in my head of the characters walking to a massive gallery or a massive um, room in either a dungeon or a palace that is just cut. Co- every square foot is basically covered with a, um, a shoulder to shoulder, like crowd of zombies, but they're all just inert. Like they're all just sitting there just like, jaws agape or um asleep or maybe they haven't fed in a while or something and you have to get wade through this crowd of zombies somehow maybe you set all of them on fire maybe you coat yourself in guts so you can walk through them and they won't sense you um maybe you try to rush through fast enough that the ones realizing your presence are already behind you at that point um maybe you try to roll through the giant creature or vehicle like all sorts of things but just this what's dangerous in that point is the, the scale right that's just a sea of zombies I like that. Zombies okay. is an environmental factor quite a bit. Yeah. I, I also really like the scene you've just set of inert zombies that are an obstacle that aren't currently doing anything. That is just riddled with tension in a way that would be very fun. Um, now, one other one last thing that I'd like to say, I'd like to shout out a game that I ran when I was probably 16 or so. This was a, not even really a system. It was just roll dice to decide if you killed the zombie or not. Um. There was a scene in a stadium where the mechanic was, this was back in my, oh, tabletop games have got to be strategy games phase. The mechanic was, there was a spotlight and wherever you shown the spotlight, the zombies would kind of stay away because they didn't want to get into the bright lights. So if you've got one spotlight and three groups of people that you need to protect, you get to point the spotlight at the different groups and keep them safe. Um, I think the, all this is to say that when you're running something like a zombie plague or, you know, something where you run the risk of letting things get a little bit too repetitive, making tactical challenges that are different from the run of the mill moment to moment action is probably one of the key ways to break that up, to make sure that people are are really thinking about what they're doing as opposed to getting into a habit and then sticking with that habit until they're done. And that's... You know, variety and, and, and freshness every time is definitely the spice of life in role-playing games. That, that'll that keep people coming back. Yes, and we want people to come back to our games. And speaking of coming back, I hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Play to Find Out, the Dungeon World podcast from the Dungeon World Discord. If you did and you want to let the world know, we'd love your reviews on the various podcast catchers that are out there in the world, in particular the iTunes store. That really helps us out, lets us know that what we're doing is appealing, and lets the algorithms know that what we're doing should be listened to by more people. And if you want to let the world know about just how powerful and how amazing of a mage you are, especially as a spellcrafter, send us those custom spells. We are currently in the midst of a spell contest. Well, at time of recording, at least. Um, I I think we should let it run for um, a few more weeks. I think it's time for us to announce the end date of the spell contest by which all spells must be submitted, is Saturday, June 30th at uh, midnight in the morning EST. So get it to us by Friday the 29th, really, because as soon as I think it's Saturday, the contest is over. 
Now, what's the uh, what what do they get if they win the contest, Eamon? Oh, there. Well, funny that you should ask. There is the potential for you to come onto the show with us, talk about your spell, uh, and help us read out some of the other, um, I guess, uh, sub sub prizes of of notable spells that we will read on the air. Um, I've seen one or two uh, float our way so far, so there there definitely are some some good good ones out there. Uh, just so you know a little bit about the judges, I'll say one thing that I that always gets because these contests are inherently subjective, and yes. I apologize. Um, but I spells that are very evocative but very strange. I always seem to gravitate for. Mm-hmm. Like I've read, yes, yeah, so I think I'm in the same camp lists. there. I've seen. 30 different versions of fireball, you know, fire stream, burning hands, you know, flaming fists. They all set people on fire. I get it. But um, there's some really, really weird and evocative spells out there. I, that's one of the reasons I've enjoyed watching uh, actual play of Invisible Sun so much so far, because every spell in that game is like that. The spells all have names like she views visions of agony or something like that. And, and it cre- create causes someone to uh, see every single surface overlaid with their own crying face for like, you know, an hour or something where they, anyone they see, they can't even understand them because all they see is their own face crying and stuff like that. So, yes. So if you want to submit a spell for our spell contest, there are, if I recall correctly, two ways to do that. Either come on the dungeon world discord and submit it in the community podcast channel just by writing it out in one post or tweet it at us at our Twitter account, which is at play numeral to find out play to find out on Twitter. Now, independently of that, you can also send us an email. If you have a question you'd like featured on the show, that email address is play to find out at protonmail.com, which here is spelled P L A Y T O F I N D O U T as opposed to play P L A Y. Then the number two, which is again, our Twitter. All of these links are accessible in various places around the internet and probably in your show notes as well. So don't don't hesitate to reach out with a review, with an entry, or just to tell us that we're doing a good job. And we look forward to hearing from you and including what you have to say on the show. Thank you so much again for joining us this week and braving the dangers of this episode, both fictional and real with the uh, audio troubles this week. Yes, hopefully this ends up being totally listenable. I'm sure that it will be. And I'm sure that you've enjoyed it. And we'll see you next week on Play to Find Out.